Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing to slowly walk through 1 Peter. And over the past few weeks, as we've gone through 1 Peter, we've, we've seen this, this description that Peter has given us for what it means to be in Christ, who we are in him. We've been told from the very beginning of 1 Peter that we have this incredible hope. We've been told that we've been adopted into the family of God, that we're people with a valuable faith. We've been promised eternal salvation. And we've been given opportunities that are amazing. As we saw last week, those opportunities are so amazing, even the angels in heaven, um, it says they just long to look into these things because it's so, so incredible. And that's who we are in Christ. And so he's described this, this uh, understanding of a Christian all the way through. And now we're at the spot where he's going to shift a little bit here and he's going to say, so now what do you do with it? You have this inheritance. You have this faith. You're part of this grand uh, plan of God. What do, you, what do you do with it? Because Peter is going to call us to action in this letter. And we're going to see that today. In fact, most of the letters of the New Testament, when, when you, you think about what was going on when the Bible was written, in, in, in those ancient days, during the first century or so of the Christian faith, as the church, uh, after you know, the day of Pentecost and the church began to spread throughout the known world at that time, they didn't have the sort of resources that we have today. If they had a question about, hey, you know, what would God say about this? For one thing, many of them wouldn't have ever even had access to the scriptures of God. Maybe they'd have a, a, a fragment of a book of the Bible here and there, but there weren't Bibles everywhere. The best-selling book of all time wasn't accessible in those days. They didn't have YouTube to hop onto YouTube and watch a message over a particular topic that they were wondering about or thinking about. They didn't have all these books written about every aspect of the Christian life, no matter what it was. You could, you know, go onto Amazon today and, and pick Christian marriage, and you could find hundreds of books written on the subject, written on the topic. They didn't have that. So what they did as they were um, growing in their faith and walking with the Lord, if they had a, a topic that came up or a question about something, and they didn't know what to do about it, they would send a messenger to go find a disciple. Go find someone who had walked with Jesus. Go find someone who had been raised in a church and, and get some of that information. And so ultimately, what that turned into was a lot of these people that were mature in the faith, the disciples, um, like Peter, they would receive a message from a group of churches, ask some questions, and they'd write down a letter to say, hey, this is how you do it. This is what you need to do. And so when you come to the letters of the New Testament, which is what this is, this letter of 1 Peter, oftentimes they are prescriptive in the way that they uh, come across, meaning they give a prescription. They, they tell you, this is what you need to do. And that is what we're going to find here in 1 Peter. We're going to find many things that he's going to tell us, hey, this is what you do if you're a Christian. And ultimately, we know it's not just the human author, but it's God speaking through 
that human author to us. So God is telling us what it is that we are to do in our lives as Christians. It's, it's where the, the rubber meets the road, as the old saying goes. And it's where we find traction in our spiritual lives, this action. And so that's where we're going to start here today. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, here's what he says. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to walk through that verse and look at all the different phrases that are there. And the first one that we see is where he says, prepare your minds for action. Now, there are all kinds of illustrations that can come to mind uh, that describe this. What does it mean? When you, what do you think of when you first think about preparing yourself for action? Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind is military personnel, how they prepare for action, prepare for uh, the line of duty. Soldiers don't just train and risk their lives in exercises just to understand the process or get the theory behind it or experience the drill. They prepare and they, they risk their lives because they're trying to prepare to be prepared to act. When the time comes and they're called on to do what they need to do, they need to know how to act. And it's a preparation of both mind and body. Athletes are, are the same way. Nobody trains and practices just so they can someday sit the bench, right? We train and we practice so that we can play, so that we can act, so that we can be involved in the game. And with those things, there's a physical preparation that takes place, but also a mental preparation. And that's what he's describing here. He says, prepare your mind for action. And oftentimes, the mental preparation is the hardest part. We can train our bodies to do lots of different things and learn different skills and, and repeat uh, you know, in body mechanics the same thing, the same way over and over. But a lot of times the way that we actually perform is more tied to the mental preparation than it is even the physical. And there's several different things that, that get in the way of that mental, mental preparation. One of the big obstacles in, in preparing your mind for anything is fear. How is that fear? What, what's the fear going to do? What are you thinking about? Where's your head? What are you focused on? I, I, what, what's driving you in it? When I was a, a kid growing up, um, from the time I was in third grade, actually from third grade to 12th grade, I played football. And from third grade on, it was called the Peanut League football. And uh, it was full contact, full pads from third grade, seven, eight years old, all the way through 12th grade. And part of it is just where I grew up and the, the, the leagues that I played in. But the way it was for me, I always was playing with guys bigger and faster and stronger than me. Always. But it was the fear that I needed to overcome to actually be able to compete. It was more of the mental preparation than it even was the physical preparation. Yeah, and, and when I describe it as fear, sure, fear of getting hurt, you're playing football, you're throwing your body into other people and everything else. Yeah, there's some of that. But really, for me, the whole thing was the fear of 
failure, the fear of losing, because the competitive nature in me, that's the fear of, ah, do I put myself out there? Because what happens if I lose? Because I don't like to lose. There's that mental preparation that you have to get over if you're going to actually act. And that's one of the things that we need to pay attention to here. Uh, The the first fill in the blank that you'll see here uh, today, if you're taking notes and following along, is this important point. The spiritual development that God takes us through is for spiritual action. When he is telling us to prepare ourselves and prepare our minds, it's because there's a purpose. And the purpose that God has is for this action. He's developing us for action. And that includes our minds and our bodies. And things like fears need to be faced. Priorities have to be reordered. And there's lots of other things involved in it, all for our action. And how is it that we're to be preparing our minds? He says the next little phrase there, being sober-minded in it. So not only... Are we preparing our minds? But he says, but I want you to do it a specific way. I want you to be sober-minded when you're preparing your mind for action. right? And and when we hear the word sober, usually in in our modern context, what we think of is sobriety. right? We talk about someone who is not sober is somebody who's intoxicated by something. Drugs or alcohol, something that's affecting their sobriety. They're impaired. That's what we think about. And that is the word... That's, that's being referred to here. It, it refers to that, but it's, it's, it's more than uh, simply being, he's not just saying make sure that you're always sober. The, the sober-mindedness that he's talking about is also just having a steady mind, being very steady and steady-minded, preserving a balanced judgment. That's one of the problems with uh, intoxicating things. They impair our judgment. That's why if you're uh, a driver, there are laws that have been put in place that tell us you cannot drive while you are impaired by some substance. It's illegal to operate a vehicle because your mind is not going to be, you're not going to have the right kind of judgment. You may pull out in front of somebody that you wouldn't normally do if you were sober. You might go a little faster than you normally would if you were sober. And, and so it's important here that we keep that, that steady mind, that sober mind. And as we prepare ourselves for action, we've got to keep a level head. And this, this is how this actually plays out in, in spiritual things. What Peter's telling us here is he says, even though I want you to prepare yourself for action, it's got to be done in such a way um, that, that isn't just stirring ourselves up, okay? Um, for, for an example here, let's say you're going to go do a bungee jump. And bungee jumping, you know, you're, you're standing on the edge of a cliff or on a giant bridge. And somebody's attached a huge rubber band to your feet. And now your job is to leap off into the great unknown over this vast expanse of nothingness and hope that that rubber band springs you back up, Right? Now, what sort of mindset, how would you prepare your mind to do that? For many of us, it's just a matter of, all right, I've just got to get my adrenaline over the top. Or if you're standing at the top of a high dive for the first time, I'm going to jump down into this pool. It's not a steady-minded mentality that you're going for here. 
What are you trying to do? You're trying to stir something up real fast. Just like, okay, breathe. Here we go. And just leap. That's not what he's describing here. He's not telling you that for your spiritual action that you've got to try to just work yourself up to this frenzy and then that's how you're going to be able to pull this off. No, because what happens with that is our adrenaline can't keep going like that all the time. We crash and burn. He's not saying stir yourself up into this frenzy uh, because what's going to happen is you're just going to fire up and then burn out. That's not what it's got to, that's not how we're, we're, we're called to be. We're called to be alert and prepared for the full battle ahead. And it's a lifelong thing that we're called to here. So what we've seen so far is he says, first, get your mind right, be prepared to move, and remain clear-headed. And then he says, set your hope. Now, we're going to see that we're going to set our hope on grace. That's going to be very important. But what we, we have to do here first is pay attention to the way that we are setting our hope. We are people of hope. We've talked about that already in 1 Peter. We'll see it over and over throughout this letter. We're people of hope. And we are exiles. We've talked about that already. And in order for us to really set our hope in the right place, we have to keep our hope on the, the, on the future return of Jesus but our eyes fixed on the present, all right? We have to have that hope on the fact that he is coming back, but also need to keep our eyes fixed on the present. It's hard to really prepare for something that's a lifetime away. And, and that's what we see um, a lot of times is we have this, this understanding that, you know, yeah, I can prepare, put my hope on the fact that Jesus is going to return, but it's so far out there. I, you know, there's been generations and generations of people that are waiting for Christ to return, hoping that Christ is going to return, but we just keep assuming that it's so far out there that how do I stay focused on this? And, and what we have to do is we have to still say, I'm going to keep my hope there, but I'm still going to stay fixed on the present. And the actions that we're preparing for in the present... Um, are, are really for now. Jesus is going to return, but we don't know when. And that's hard. But if we lose sight of the future hope, we lose our passion, our ability to engage with the world now. And what he's calling us to, and this is the next fill in the blank that you have there on your list, he's calling us to fully set our hope on the grace that will accompany his return. And to be prepared to act now. So we're going to put our hope on this grace, knowing that this grace is someday coming to us, but also we're going to be prepared to act right now. And that's where we lean into the grace. So if we're setting our hope fully on what? On the grace that will come. Grace is one of those things that we really have to understand if we want to understand the heart of God. And not only understand the heart of God, but also understand our place in God's plan. We have to understand grace. And I think for um, a lot of my life growing up, I really didn't have a very good handle on grace or understand to really understand what grace was all about. And, and I think I still am learning 
about grace and, and trying to get my, my mind around it. But know this, everything, everything that we have in Christ, everything that Peter has talked about in the beginning of the, the chapter, everything that we have, everything hinges on the grace of God. We can't regenerate ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves. Those are some theological terms, but we can't even save ourselves. We can't do it. God alone can do those things. And what is grace? A simple definition of grace. Grace is freely given favor. Grace is freely given favor. God gives it to us. He gives it to us freely, and it's his favor, his care for us, his love for us, and it's given to us freely. A verse that many of us are familiar with and know very well, and we should all know, is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 9, which describes grace so beautifully. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's, the, that's where our hope is set, remember? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Four, verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Everything hinges on grace. And so we set our hope fully on that grace. We set our hope on the goodness of God. We set our hope on his love for us. We set our hope on the grace that came through Jesus and his ability to take our sins away. It's all on him. We're completely reliant on him and his grace for our eternity. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot cleanse yourself from your sin. You cannot raise yourself from the dead. But he can. And that's the, where we have our, our hope resting. Now, sadly, sometimes we try to put our hope on things that aren't grace, on other things. And that's why we need this reminder here today, that this is where our hope should be set. It should be set on the grace of God. Because we want to put our hope on things that can't deliver. But there are things that we see and things that are visible. And so we feel like, oh, maybe that's where my hope should be. What are some of those things? Well, one of the things that we put our hope in is ourselves. We just figure, well, our own goodness, my goodness, my accomplishments, my skills, my abilities, my influence, my health, my strength, my determination, I'll make sure that I see things through to the end. And that's where our hope is. But we let ourselves down. We can't help it. We might put our hope in other people. Well, the community that I'm part of, my family, my relationships, that's where my hope is really going to be found. That's where my fulfillment is going to be. No, that won't do it either. Or sometimes we'll even put our hope in things. 
Uh, well, I'll just put all my hope and my trust in the, the security that I have in this life and the life to come will be in what I accumulate on earth, my wealth, my possessions, or my insurance policies. I'm fine. I'll be taken care of. That's where my hope is. And, and when we, we try to put our hope on grace, it feels a little risky. Why? Because if I have my hope in another person, I can see this other person and I'm with this person, I know who this person is. But what, is, what does Peter say in the beginning um, of chapter 1? We, we looked at this a couple weeks ago where it talks about we love this Savior that we haven't seen. We believe in a God that we have not seen with our own eyes. And, and that feels a little risky sometimes, but we have to remember that grace is our only hope. Grace is our only hope. It's how we can stand in this life. I love how Peter and Paul write the same truths in different ways, um, especially here in talking about grace and hope. Look at how Paul describes this same thing in Romans 5, 1-2. Here's what he writes. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does he say? He reminds us again, look, it's by faith that we can even enter into this grace. And when we enter into this grace and put our trust in God and God alone and his goodness and his grace, that's when we can actually stand. That's what allows us to stand. It's not because of how hard we've worked. It's not because of who we know and all that we're trying to pull off in this world. It's not because of how righteous we've become. It's not because of how much money we've given generously to other people. It's because we're in this grace, this freely given grace. That's where, that's where it's at. So once we're prepared, back here in 1 Peter, once we're prepared, once we're hoping in his grace, it's now time to act. And that's what we see in verses 14 to 16. Read it with me. He says now, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What kind of action is he calling us to? He says, get your mind ready. Sober-minded, hope resting on grace. And now you're going to begin to act. What kind of action? Holy action. And he, he uh, quotes a verse here that actually pops up multiple times um, in, in the Bible, this whole idea of God writing that in verse 16 where it says, you shall be holy for I am holy. What, he, what is he saying? He says, we are called to be holy. And what does that mean? That means that our conduct must change. Our conduct must change. A, a life of true faith is one of deep transformation. We talk about that a lot here at this church. Being part of the South Point community is being committed to being changed by God, transformed by God. That's what we're trying to do together. We want to be changed because we know that is part of walking with the Lord. 
not just a change in what we think or how we think or how we see the world, but how we behave, our conduct. Christianity is not just the right way of thinking. It is the right way of living. Sink that one deep into your mind. Christianity is not the right way, just the right way of thinking. It's the right way of living. And it's the right way because it's God's way. And I know that that is a very countercultural statement. People don't want to be told that. People don't want to hear me say, following God is the right way because it's his way. We don't like that. Our culture as a whole, our culture is in the middle of a truth crisis. And I think if you've uh, been paying attention to the world around you for the past year, that's been made very clear and very evident. We are in the middle of a truth crisis. As a whole, we don't want to be bothered by the truth. It's irritating. It's annoying. It's not what we want. So we don't want it. I don't want to hear the truth. I want my own truth. I want to make my truth. I want to figure out my truth. There is no your truth. There's truth and there's lie. That's the way it is. We want to shape things, twist things and manipulate things and call them truths. But that doesn't make something true. We can cover up truth. We can ignore truth. We can pretend that something isn't true when it is. But does that change the truth? No. Truth is unfazed. And what does the Bible tell us about truth? What did Jesus say about truth? Was he kind of wishy-washy on truth? Did he tell his disciples, you know, go out there and, and discover what is true for you and then just kind of live with that? No, he didn't say anything like that. He tells us in John 17, 17, very clearly, and he, he was speaking to his father here. He's praying to the father, actually. And he, he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said plainly that God's word is truth. And he also said that he came to speak the words of truth that he heard from his father. Now, I know a lot of times when we think about God's word, we think of the Bible, which it is. Jesus came and he spoke into existence the truth of God and spoke God's word. So how can I say that our conduct, our behaviors, and our actions must change? Well, because Jesus said it. Jesus said it in John 14, 15. He said specifically to all of his followers, he said, look, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The word keep can also be translated obey. You will obey my commandments. If you are going to follow me, if you're going to walk in the ways of truth, then you're going to obey my commandments. Now here's the problem. That might be great. You're like, okay, yeah, I like that. I'll, I'll do that. I'll just do what, what Jesus says. And whatever I find to be in God's word, in the Bible, or in the truth of God that's evident in the world around me, then I'll just know that that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk in that. The problem is, our actions don't instinctually line up with his commandments most of the time. 
Therefore, we have to change. We have to change our conduct. Here's what it says in 1 John 2, 3 to 6 about this. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You've got people out there that say, yeah, I like the idea of the truth of Jesus. I've studied Jesus, I think about Jesus, and I, I believe in his truth. That's great. It's so good that you believe those things, but do you actually live it? Do you obey it? Do you just mentally know about the truth, but does it actually filter down into the rest of the way that you live your life? Because what John says is, here he says, look, you can say you know all about him. You can say you believe about him and all that. But if you don't do what he says to do, you're a liar. You don't know God. He's not in you. But if you do those things that he's called you to do and you obey his commandments, now you can begin to say, I am truly walking in the truth. Now, now many people believe that lie, a lie that, that says that if I'm just sincere and I just give it my best shot, then, then God's going to overlook my sins and he'll include me in his eternal plans. Okay, guys, I, I love the sentiment. That's a fun idea to throw out there, but that's not what God says. It's not what he says in his word. It's not what Jesus came and said. It's not what the prophets spoke. It's not what the disciples have said. It's not what the traditions of the church have always said. It, that's, not, that's not enough. It's not how it's going to work. It's just not true. The truth is God calls us to obedience. He calls us to obey him, not just acknowledge him. In fact, there's a verse in scripture that says, you know, the, the demons acknowledge God. They know who he is. They, the demons himself, when you go through the gospels, when Jesus would confront demons who had possessed human beings, they always recognized, okay, Jesus, I know who you are. But that doesn't mean that they're obeying him or walking with him. It doesn't mean he, they're in right relationship with him. He calls us to obey him, not just acknowledge him. And here's a statement that I want to make here that if you, if you don't get much else today, at least take this and ponder it, all right? I believe that the greatest hindrance to our spiritual health, our spiritual life, and our spiritual growth is disobedience. The greatest hindrance for the spiritual life that you think you want to have for your growth and for your health, the greatest hindrance is disobedience. Now, I know that's kind of a bold statement because immediately you start thinking, well, no, I don't think it's just my disobedience. It's all these other things. I don't think so. I think it's disobedience. It's not a lack of knowledge. Look, you could have the Bible memorized from Genesis 1 to the very end of Revelation. Every word in here memorized. But if you don't obey it, 
you're not going to be spiritually healthy. It's not a lack of the theology behind things, the philosophy. I don't think it's spiritual attack. That's not the greatest hindrance. It's not that the devil just keeps getting in your way. It's not a lack of understanding or opportunity or self-discipline. It's not even our laziness. I don't think that's the greatest hindrance. I think the greatest hindrance is our disobedience. It's that powerful pull of our sin nature that causes us to disobey God. We don't want to picture ourselves as disobedient children. I know that. Especially as you, even as you've walked with the Lord a long time and you mature in the faith, the last thing you want to do is say, actually, I'm just kind of a disobedient brat. (laughs) God tells me to do this and I choose to not do it. We don't want to view ourselves as that, but we are. And you know what? People have always been that way. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis and the first couple chapters there and, and you see the fall and you read about the story of Eve with Satan in the Garden of Eden. And what does that story tell us about human nature? Not just about Eve, but also about human nature. Eve was tempted to disobey God, the command of God, because she wanted it her way. God specifically told Adam and Eve, look, here's this tree and here's this fruit. Don't eat it. But Eve was tempted. Yeah, the Satan, the serpent was involved, but all he was doing was pulling her into what she really wanted. It was there. God told her his way, but she chose otherwise. Here's what it says in Genesis 3, 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, this is what she wanted. This is her opinion of it. I look at it. God tells me not to eat it, but I see it and I think it's beautiful. I see it and I think it's going to be so good. I see it and I know really he's just trying to keep me away from his level of wisdom and I need that and I want that. And it says, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They wanted it their way. And here's what we have to recognize about ourselves. Don't tell yourself some false truth. The truth is we all share a passion for sin. That's what he talks about there in verse 14 of 1 Peter. He says, it's the passions of your former ignorance. We all share a passion for sin. So disobedience shouldn't surprise any of us. We don't want to view ourselves as these disobedient children, but we are. The next chapter in Genesis, we see another story where where God even gives some more insight to that when he's talking to Adam and Eve's son, Cain. And Cain, if you know the story, Cain was jealous of his brother, um, so so jealous, he uh, a hatred grew in his heart for his brother, ultimately where he would want to murder him. And as the story goes on, we find out that Cain does end up murdering his brother. But before that happens, God comes to Cain and God cautions him. And here's what it says in Genesis 4, 6 to 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this. It's so important. We have to know this. 
If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is the action step that Peter's calling us to. He says, be aware, be alert. Sin is crouching at your door. It's always going to be crouching at your door because we're naturally bent toward disobedience. But what does God tell Cain and he tells us through it? He says, you have to rule over it. It's a call to action. It's a call to step beyond the disobedience that we want and to choose the obedience to him. And it's a battle that we fight every day of our lives. As we grow and as we move past certain hindrances and roadblocks in our lives, the specifics change, but the fight, the fight remains the same. And this battle isn't going to be over until we die or Jesus returns. That's how it is. We want it our way, but God calls us to his way, the way of holiness. And as we take steps of obedience, we begin to experience the transformation of holiness. That's why we're called to take these steps and called to this action. In multiple places in Scripture, God commands his people to be holy just like he is. Leviticus 11.44 is one of those passages. It's an easy verse for you to memorize today. Leviticus 11.44. And it seems when we hear that, when God says, you be holy because I, your God, am holy. When we hear that, it seems really hard for us because we're like, how can I ever be as holy as God? He's God. It's like galaxies beyond me, holy. How can I be that kind of holy? I'm just a disobedient person and I have my own sinful nature. How can I be holy like he's holy? That's impossible. Come on, God. Well, here's why this is a message for every one of us. He doesn't say be perfect um, because I'm totally perfect and I want you to be without sin ever and always. And if you ever sin, I'm going to disown you and say that you're not my child. That's, that's not what he's saying here. He, but he's, he's putting it out there for us to aim for. But the reason it's a message for all of us is because God is calling all of us towards obedience. And obedience leads to holiness. It's a pathway. When he says, be holy, he's not saying, boom, change yourself so you're perfectly holy. What he says is, become holy. Come be holy like I am holy. And the way that you come to that holiness is through obedience. That is how we grow in holiness. Each one of us has a choice to make. We can take the next step of obedience towards God, or we can take the next step away from God. That's the daily decisions that we make. So the pathway to holiness is a step-by-step, decision-by-decision, day-by-day pathway. So how do we apply this as we finish up here today? How do we apply it? How do we bring it into our our own world? Well, first off, I want to encourage you to take a look at your own heart today. Have your actions recently been actions of obedience or disobedience to God this week? Think about it. 
Think about some specifics in your life. Were you holy in the way that you talked to other people this week? Did you spend your money in ways that honored God? Were your thoughts holy thoughts? Did you spend your time doing things that would please Him? Or did you choose to obey your own passions and ignore His passions? Those are some questions to begin getting you to think about it. And then to really, to really take a, a look and say, hey, how is my overall spiritual health? Am I spiritually healthy? Or am I struggling spiritually? Our spiritual health is the center of who we are. And when it's off track, everything else gets off track in our lives too. And, and that's how I've seen it in my life many times. I'll start thinking, man, um, you know, what, what's God's deal? Why is he being quiet to me? Why is he letting me suffer in this way? Why is he not doing all the things that I expect God to do? Oftentimes, it just comes down to my own disobedience. Here's what I mean by that. Is God not speaking to you? Well, where have you silenced his voice? Is God not near to you? Well, where have you been avoiding him? Is God not providing for you? Where have you tried to provide for yourself? Is God not changing you? Where have you tried to take some shortcuts? Almost always, what I've found in my own life is it's these little areas of disobedience, sometimes small disobedience, sometimes big disobedience. <laughs> but it's those things that, that cause that separation. And usually my first reaction is to blame God. When in reality, it's almost always my disobedience that's created that distance in our relationship. Now, I will say this. Sometimes distance in our relationship with God has nothing to do with disobedience. So I don't want you to go find, um, create disobedience in your mind to say, well, that's why I'm suffering. That's why I'm dealing with my health declining. That's why I'm uh, relationally broken from my family members. Or That's not necessarily disobedience. It could be those things, but it doesn't have to be. Because sometimes God allows space to happen between us so that he can stretch our faith and grow our faith. But our first step should always be to look at our actions and make sure that we're walking in obedience. And if you find disobedience in your heart today, what do you do with it? If you look back at your day and or your week and you say, oh yeah, I know I did that. I know it was wrong. I know I chose my path instead of his path. What do you do? You repent. That's what we do as Christians. God is gracious. He loved us when we were still sinners. He loves you even when you sin as a Christian. And he's willing to wash you clean and get you back on the path. You have to repent and begin to obey. And I think that that is the simple secret to experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised us. It's always, just always take the next step of obedience. So what's the next step of obedience for your life today? Where is the Holy Spirit leading you? That's what I want you to think about this week, pray about this week, have, have good dialogue and conversations um, with, with your life group about this week. What does that next step of, of obedience look like for you? Um, and now as we, as we finish up here, I also want to say that next week when we meet outdoors at the park, 
we're going to talk more about why we should take those steps of obedience. And over the coming weeks throughout 1 Peter, he's going to give us more specific commands to follow. But let's just make the decision now, at this first part of 1 Peter, let's just make the decision to be people that obey the word, not just hear it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. And God, I just pray that you would make us obedient children. And I know that that is against our nature, but I also know that that is the new nature that we've been given, is a nature of holiness, a nature of righteousness, because it's Jesus' nature. And that is how you're transforming us, and that's who you are making us into. You have saved us, but you're not satisfied to just leave us broken, sinful people. Instead, you are transforming us and making us those people that can shine your light into the world and those people that will be perfectly at home in heaven under your authority and under your lordship. And so I pray, God, that today you would make each one of us make a commitment in our hearts to obey you in in all of our actions. If there are places in our hearts and our lives where we've been obviously disobedient, I pray, Lord, that you would call people to repentance today. Let's leave sin behind us. Let's leave these things that we continue to do over and over that are just wrong behind us. Grow us, Lord. Mature us. Help us move past these things and allow us to experience the abundant life that comes from those people that are walking right in step with you. Prepare us for obedience, we pray. Thank you for this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.